Uh, my name is David, and uh, today we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 27. Let me read this for us. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? that even winds and sea obey him. This is God's word. Uh, please join me in a moment of prayer as we come before God. Father, we do ask that today your word would speak and that as you again issue your call to follow, that our hearts would respond. Show us again why it is that we follow and entrust our lives to Jesus, our faithful Savior. Uh, we ask that right now your spirit would give us conviction and just leading. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, there's a very familiar scene that happens all the time in the movies. A police officer, and in my mind, he's always played by Will Smith. The police officer just runs into traffic, frantically stops a car, flashes credentials, and then yells at the driver, get out, I need your car. Right? Uh, this is called commandeering a vehicle. A law enforcement takes a civil, uh, a, a law enforcement officer takes a civilian's car to chase down a suspect and make an arrest. And this happens all the time in the movies. And I've often wondered: Is this even legal? Are they allowed to just take your car like that? So this week, I went to a law library and pulled out the California state code. No, I didn't do that. I, I went to Google, of course, and I typed in, you know, commandeer vehicle. And uh, I was surprised to find that it is, in fact, legal. In most states, police officers can seize your vehicle if they think it is necessary for making an arrest. It's part of our duty as citizens to give up our cars like that. Now, thankfully, uh, it never happens in real life, but they do have that authority. You know, our text today is not about that one time Jesus commandeered someone's donkey to ride into Jerusalem. Uh, that's a different story in Matthew 21. Here in Matthew 28, uh, in Matthew 8, I mean, Jesus is doing something that is even more egregious. He is basically commandeering people's lives. He says to his disciples, Move over, I'm in the driver's seat now. And the question is, what gives him the authority to do that, to take that kind of ownership over someone's life? Of course, from our vantage point, uh, we 
know and we proclaim Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Pretty much, in our minds, whatever Jesus wants to do, uh, we grant that he has the right and the authority to do it. But if you're reading the Gospel of Matthew, at this point in the story that Matthew is telling us about Jesus, so far Jesus has appeared to the crowds around him and even to his own disciples as a Jewish rabbi, a great teacher. Now, none of the other rabbis in that area were quite like Jesus. Uh, Jesus taught with this uncommon authority. Jesus healed the sick in large numbers, drawing large crowds to him. Jesus cast out demons. But just like other rabbis, Jesus has gathered around himself a, a number of committed disciples, his students. And in Matthew chapter 8, he is laying down some of the ground rules and expectations that he has for them. He tells one would-be disciple, prepare yourself to be homeless. You know, that's just a loose paraphrase if you can't tell. Uh, he tells another disciple, turn your back on your family, disown them. If you want to be my student, if you really want to follow me, they are dead to you now. And the question is, how can Jesus make these kinds of outrageous demands? When we're reading this passage, these demands Jesus makes uh, really grab our attention as readers. But our focus should not be just on the demands. Our focus should be on the authority that Jesus claims for himself in making demands like these on his disciples. You see, if you focus just on the demands Jesus makes, this text will basically just give you reasons not to follow Jesus. If you just focus on the demands themselves, you'll read this passage, reflect on it, and you'll walk away less inclined to follow Jesus. I mean, after all, who here really wants to forsake their families? Who wants to give up their homes? But if you read this passage and you realize Jesus is not just some rabbi, he's not just a teacher, but Jesus is in fact someone who has the right and the authority to make an absolute claim on the totality of your life. If you see that Jesus has that kind of authority, then you will see that it is perfectly right and perfectly good to follow Jesus wherever he leads, whatever conditions he places on you, whatever the circumstances might be, whatever the costs. So we're going to go through this text, and we're going to answer a few questions. First, we'll ask, why follow Jesus? Why follow Jesus? And then we'll consider, as we must if we're reading this, why not follow Jesus? What are some reasons we wouldn't necessarily want to follow him? But we won't just leave it there. We'll conclude uh, with the most important question of all. Why follow Jesus for the long haul? Why follow him through thick and thin, through the ups and downs of life? Why follow Jesus into the storms? All right, let's start with the first question. Why follow Jesus? If you look at this passage, it's all about authority. In verse 18, at the beginning, it says, Jesus gave orders to go to the other side. Jesus is commanding 
his disciples, get in the boats, we're crossing the Sea of Galilee. In the Gospel of Matthew, other than Jesus, the only other people who ever give commands are kings and rulers. Uh, One time, King Herod gives a command to bring the head of John the Baptist on a platter to him. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea at the time of Jesus' death, gives an order to release Jesus' body to Joseph of Arimathea, one of his disciples, for burial. And then in one of Jesus' parables, there's a fictional king who orders the imprisonment of a servant. So in the Gospel of Matthew, giving orders, giving commands is something only kings and rulers do. And here in verse 18, Jesus claims that kind of authority to command his disciples, go to the other side. In verses 19 to 22, we get these two encounters with separate disciples, uh, would-be students, and Jesus spells out the conditions of obedience that they must meet if they want to be his followers. In this story, we're not told specifically what their response was, whether they obeyed or not. But we're told in verse 23, when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. When Jesus commands, his disciples obey. Where Jesus leads, his disciples follow. That is what makes you a disciple of Jesus, whether you obey whether you actually follow. You know, I'm thankful that uh, when I was invited to preach today, uh, I was given leeway to just pick any text I wanted to. I didn't have to preach in our Proverbs sermon series. And so I chose this text. And I chose Matthew 8, 18 to 27 because it holds a special place in my heart because it's part of my story, how I got here. Many of you are familiar with uh, parts of my story. Uh, I've had the opportunity to share uh, on many occasions over the years. Uh, Pastor Jimmy mentioned my family and I, my wife Susanna, are now three kids. Uh, We are headed into the mission field. Uh, We are going to Taiwan. And actually, uh, two weeks ago, uh, Susanna and I were down in Escondido at the campus of Westminster Seminary. And we went through this week-long training with Mission to the World, our mission agency. And after that training, uh, we are now officially part of Mission to the World. We are what they call itinerating missionaries. That means we are now officially in the process of raising support. And, you know, our goal as itinerating missionaries now is to assemble the best support team that we can so that when we get to Taiwan, we can be effective in our ministry there for years and hopefully for decades to come. And let me just say right now that uh, Susanna and I are so thankful for the support and the encouragement that we've received from CCSC as our home church for many years and now as we move forward with CCSC as our sending church. We are so encouraged and blessed that we have a church and a community standing behind us as we go out. And we're hoping that in the coming months that many of you here, 
as many as the Lord calls will join our support team to financially support, encourage, and pray for us as long as God has us in the mission field. Now, we're hoping uh, that uh, God will get us to Taiwan by next summer. Um, that will be summer 2020. And Susanna and Pastor Jimmy both love saying this, 2020 vision. That's a way to remember what our timeline is. So hopefully by next summer, our family will be in Taiwan uh, doing the Lord's work there. But it's been a long road getting here. This journey that we're on began nine years ago in 2010 at a missions conference hosted by CPC. At that conference, God really spoke and gave me a heart for theological education in Asia, and that led me to the decision uh, to go back to school, uh, which is what I'm now finishing up at Fuller Seminary. But getting back to Matthew 8, and this all ties in, uh, when I went back to school, uh, when I started my training to become a New Testament scholar, to pursue this calling, my very first class at Talbot was on the Gospel of Matthew. And the very first academic level text that I read was on this passage, Matthew 8, 18 to 27. And it was a book by a German scholar named Martin Hengel. And he was one of the giants of New Testament studies in the 20th century. Now this book was very short, just 88 pages, but it was incredibly dense. It was trial by fire, just being thrown off the deep end to see if you would sink or swim. And in this book, Martin Hengel looked at this passage and he examined Jesus' call to the disciples here and he tried to place it in the historical context of first century Judaism. And Martin Hengel realized that what Jesus does here in this passage is historically unique. No one else was going around in the ancient world calling disciples in the way that Jesus called them. So Hengel searched high and low for any kind of historical precedent or historical parallel that might explain what was going on here. And he, he found exactly one precedent. And that was this. Yahweh, God in the Old Testament, calling his prophets. You see, no Jewish rabbi ever asked their disciples to brace themselves for homelessness. No Jewish rabbi would ever tell their disciples, turn their backs on their, on their families. That would just never happen. But if you turn to the Old Testament, God in the Old Testament, when he calls his prophets, he laid on them an absolute and complete claim to their lives. He demanded complete and total obedience. He called his prophets sometimes to leave their homes, sometimes to suffer imprisonment, sometimes to endure deprivation or near starvation, and sometimes God called his prophets to endure exile or even death. And in the Old Testament, whatever God commanded, his prophets obeyed fully, wholeheartedly, all to proclaim the word of the Lord to the nations. Now, why did the prophets obey? 
It's very simple. Because it was the Lord who called them, the Lord of heaven and earth. All of us here who are professing Christians have at some point answered the call of Jesus to follow. That conversion, that story of grace, of first coming to Christ, it comes in many varieties. It comes in different shapes and textures with many different details. For some of you here, your story of grace might center on a recognition of your sinfulness, the awareness that you are standing before a holy God, before his judgment seat. For others of you, your experience was that of being lost without a compass in this world, and Jesus entered in to give you meaning and purpose. Some Christians tell their story of grace as a passage from the darkness of ignorance into the light of truth. Others speak of imprisoning despair, broken by the liberating hope of Jesus Christ. There are endless variations in our experience of coming to Christ for the first time, setting out to follow him as his disciples. But foundational to all of those stories of grace is a recognition that when Jesus calls us, it is the Lord who calls. At the heart of Christian faith is the very simple confession, Jesus is Lord. That is the first and most basic confession of all Christians. So why, why do we follow Jesus when he calls? It is because he is Lord. That is the authority that Jesus claims for himself here in Matthew 8. When he calls his disciples, he expects them to follow with absolute commitment because he is the Lord the Lord of heaven and earth. That's why we follow. But our text today also gives us some reasons why we wouldn't want to follow Jesus. Jesus himself volunteers these reasons. What are some reasons not to follow? Now, I don't want you to leave today too convinced not to follow Jesus for these reasons, but it is legitimate and right that we at least Dwell on them for a moment, recognize them, reflect on them, because Jesus asks us to. And we're going to consider two reasons today why people, even professing Christians, even Christians who genuinely want to follow Jesus, why they don't actually end up living for him. The first reason in our passage is personal ambition. In verse 19, a scribe who would have been an expert trained in the Jewish law comes up to Jesus and volunteers for discipleship. He tells Jesus, Lord, teacher, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says this. He says, foxes have holes, birds of the airs have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This scribe is a religious professional. He might be a seminary student or a pastor in training. This scribe identifies Jesus as another religious professional. He calls him teacher. And the scribe's unspoken ambition is to have a fulfilling religious career. 
and he wants the training, the mentoring, and the credentials that a famous teacher like Jesus can give him. In the face of these ambitions, Jesus replies, the Son of Man has no home. He's talking about himself. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What does Jesus mean by this? Think about how much, even today, homeownership means to us. The value that we place on having a home, having a place to call our own, a place to lay our heads. So many of our ambitions in life are tied up in this idea of home. As Americans living in a capitalist society, we are all, to some extent, driven by the pursuit of wealth. Home ownership in America is one of the most important tools for accumulating wealth. If you are privileged to be in the middle class instead of paying monthly rent, a mortgage allows you to build your net worth. The home is also closely associated with our ambitions in other areas of life, in our relationships, romance, marriage, family, having children. When the single people here daydream about the marital bliss that surely awaits them in the, you know, in the distant or not so distant future, it's not just that perfect person you are imagining in your mind's eye. It is the perfect setting, that home where you will build your life together. For the married folk, perhaps more grounded in reality, Decisions about home ownership are driven by the dreams that you have for your children. Because, of course, in this country, where you live dictates the kind of education your kids have access to. All of our ambitions in life are centered on this idea of home. Not all, but most, many. When Jesus says the Son of Man uh, has nowhere to lay his head, He's not saying that all of us here have to be homeless. He's not even saying that you must sacrifice all your ambitions in life. But what he is saying to us today is that when you make him Lord, you must make him the sole and driving ambition in life. And you must take all of your other ambitions and entrust them into his care. Jesus is not just commandeering your vehicle. He is commandeering your life when he calls you to follow. He's saying, move over, let me drive. I know where you need to go. But we'll never let go of that wheel until we are ready to surrender and entrust our ambitions to him. A second reason why we don't follow when we're called is because we have other obligations, pressing obligations in our lives. In verse 21, another disciple says to Jesus, first, let me go bury my father. To understand what's going on, we need to know what the phrase, bury my father, actually means. Uh, there's a good case to be made that this disciple is not actually saying, Jesus, you know, I would love to follow you. I'm ready to cross the sea with you, but my dad just died. They're actually all waiting for me at home for the, to start the funeral. Just give me a couple hours 
and I will be right back. I will get on that boat. That's probably not what this disciple is saying. What, what's actually going on is this scenario. In this culture, bury my father often functions as an idiom, a phrase that means while my parents are still living, let me fulfill all of my filial duties to them as a good son. And when my dad passes away, God willing, at a ripe old age, then I will be my own man. I will be able to make my own decisions in life. But until then, I will submit myself faithfully as his son to his authority. So as far as we know, this disciple's father is in perfect health, and he may remain so for years or even decades. And this father, as a quote-unquote, you know, good Jewish father of the first century, is probably in no way willing to authorize his son to go follow Jesus around the Galilean countryside. That would not be a respectable type of life. And so when this disciple says, Lord, let me first bury my father. Wait until my father is gone. Jesus responds to this, this disciple, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. It sounds very harsh, and it is. It is very harsh in many, in many ways. But Jesus is not saying to him or to us that all Christians must turn their backs on their family. You must neglect your parents. You must neglect all your other obligations in life. What Jesus is saying here is, you cannot let any obligation, even those that are most important, stand in the way of following him. This, uh, this specific example of our obligation to elderly parents touches a nerve for many of us here, especially those who are second-generation Asian Americans. The immigrant experience is one of the unifying aspects of Asian American identity. We're all immigrants. And as children of immigrants, we carry with us, to some extent, a burden of guilt. Because the immigrant story that our parents went through, it, of course, it comes in many different varieties again, but the generic features include suffering and sacrifice, all for the sake of the next generation, their children. And this immigrant story instills in us, deep down, a sense of obligation to redeem their suffering, to redeem their experience as immigrants, so as children of immigrants, we often do not feel at liberty to go against the spoken or often unspoken expectations our parents have for the kind of lives we were meant to live. On Netflix, uh, there's a romantic comedy that I watched recently called Always Be My Maybe. It's a great movie and I highly recommend it. And it's notable not just for having Asian actors in the lead roles, but it's also uh, notable because it naturally depicts aspects of Asian American life in just very ordinary ways as part of the story. Uh, one of the characters, uh, his name's Marcus, played by Randall Park. 
He's a man who has put his life on hold. He has put his dreams on hold to stay home, take over the family business, and take care of his aging father, who is a widower. Now, of course, since it's a movie, Marcus is a very extreme example. But the tension there between following our calling and taking care of our parents and obeying them, fulfilling their wishes, is a very familiar one. It's the same tension that Jesus highlights when he tells this unnamed disciple, let the dead bury the dead. Jesus is not denying that all of us have many obligations. Many of these obligations are very important to us, and they are very important to God. He is the one who has entrusted to us these responsibilities in life. But none of these obligations can justify a pattern of deferral where we endlessly put off a life of obedience, a life of faithfulness. We can't just put off following Jesus for a later date when we're ready, when the circumstances are better. So here we have two reasons, ambitions and obligations, why even against our best intentions, we end up not following Jesus wholeheartedly. These ambitions and obligations are not in themselves bad things, but they end up being things that we are not ready to entrust to Jesus fully when he calls. Again, returning to that familiar scene from the movies, in the movies, anytime a car gets commandeered, Without fail, the car ends up getting totaled. That's how the car chase ends. Every car chase ends with a huge wreck. So if a movie cop ever takes your car, you can bet 100% you're never going to see it again. And that's our fear. When Jesus calls us to follow, when he tells us, I'm getting in the driver's seat now, our deep fear is that he's going to make a wreck of our lives, our lives that we have spent so much energy and time building up. But is that what really happens when Jesus takes over? In verse 23, continuing in the text, Jesus gets into the boat to cross the sea, and his disciples are the ones who follow him into that boat. We don't know if the scribe got in as well. We don't know if that unnamed disciple decided to follow or not. But we all have our own choice to make. Do we get in the boat with Jesus or do we not? But Christians are identified and defined by the ones who get in the boat, who know that Jesus is Lord and follow him. Christians get in the boat. Now what happens once we're in the boat. If we read the story, at first glance, it seems our greatest fears are validated. The disciples get in the boat, and immediately it sails straight into a great storm. The boat is being swamped by strong waves, and Jesus is asleep. He's not even paying attention. To mix our metaphors together, there's a storm and Jesus has fallen asleep at the wheel. It's exactly what we expected. It's exactly what we feared most. But then the disciples wake Jesus. They cry to him. 
Save us, Lord. We are perishing. He says to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He gets up, rebukes the winds and the sea, and there is a great calm. A great calm. It's not just a little calm or an ordinary calm. We're told it's a great calm. There is this supernatural, divine peace and blessing that blankets them. And the disciples marvel, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Of course, it's a rhetorical question, but we can answer it. Jesus is no mere human being. Jesus is the Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth. He has that kind of authority. So we see in this passage, the disciples followed Jesus into the boat because they knew he was Lord. But also at the same time, they followed Jesus into the boat, sail into the storm, and they learn experientially, deep down inside, that he is the Lord. They witness firsthand Jesus' lordship in action. They experience intimately the protective power of their Lord over them, safeguarding them. They go through that great storm with Jesus, and on the other side, they know without a doubt that Jesus is more than able to care for them and protect them. He is more than worthy of all that they have entrusted to him. He is worthy of their entire lives. So the most important question of all for us is, why follow Jesus for the long haul? Why go with him into the storms of life when we could seek comfort and supposed security elsewhere? We follow Jesus for the long haul through the storms because that's the only way we can come to know deep down inside, deep in our bones, that Jesus is Lord, that he is almighty, all-knowing, all-wise, and perfectly able to care for us, absolutely worthy of complete trust and obedience. You know, Susanna and I are setting out with our three kids uh, to follow Jesus for the long haul, all the way to Taiwan. We're being sent out as missionaries by this church. We are joining Mission to the World to join in the work that they are already doing. Uh, We'll be at Christ College in Taipei. When we get there, Susanna and I will employ our gifts and our talents, the training and expertise that God has given to us. And we'll do it all to assist the church in Taiwan as it grows. And that's our story, but in reality, our journey and our discipleship and our ministry there, just like yours here, is all about seeing Jesus at work. We are following Jesus to Taiwan to see him in action. It's not about what we're going to do. And in Taiwan, a country that is less than 5% Christian, we will get to see the gospel advance through the powerful name of Jesus, through his authority. And when we get there, there will be storms over there just like there are here. But when Jesus calls, we follow him because he is Lord. And there will be storms in your life. That much is guaranteed. There will be times you feel like you are 
perishing, sinking under the waves that life throws at you. But it's also guaranteed by the faithful, unbreaking promise of God that when you call, Jesus will rise up and he will show himself to you so powerfully and so faithfully that he is Lord. Jesus is Lord, so let's follow him. Please join me in prayer. Father, we give you praise and we give you thanks that you are Lord Almighty, the God of heaven and earth, that all things are in your hand, all things are under your sovereign authority. We thank you that you have given to us Jesus Christ, our faithful Savior, and a Lord who calls us to follow, to witness the greatness of your love and your faithfulness to us, the power of salvation that is being unleashed throughout the world. And thank you, God, that through every storm, he is a faithful Lord and Savior. He is more than able to quiet the seas and the winds. He is able to care for us, to protect all that we entrust to him. Show himself, show him to us today that he is absolutely worthy of our trust and obedience. And may your spirit so work in our hearts that we, would, that we would be ready to follow him wherever he goes. In Jesus' name, amen.